So it's been a very exciting, but also a very exhausting and busy week for all of you. And I know that tonight there's a staff appreciation evening. You really deserve that every night, especially for those of you who have been dealing with the flu outbreak that we've had here. I know it's been very disappointing and very difficult and very complicated for many of you to be in isolation and to uh, be stuck not being a part of the whole program that's going on here. Um, I just wanted to speak very briefly, just a little bit of chizuk. Moshe Rabbeinu's first engagement, his first foray into any communal affairs was after he grows up in the palace of Paro, and we're told that Moshe Rabbeinu grew older by Yetzeh al Echav, he goes out to his brothers, and as he famously sees that there was an Ish Mitzri, Maka Ish Ivri, he sees that there was an Egyptian who was beating up a Jewish man, and he looks this way and he looks that way, and he sees that there's no one there, and immediately upon seeing that there's no one around, he hits this man and he kills him, and as we know in the end, the word did get out and Moshe Rabbeinu ran for his life, but there are a number of perushim to what it means, what does it mean, Moshe Rabbeinu looked here and he looked there and he saw there was no one there. So the first interpretation, which is the Pashupshat is, Moshe Rabbeinu was afraid. He was doing something dangerous. He knew that somebody could snitch on him. And he was looking around to make sure there was nobody watching. He ended up making a mistake. He thought there was nobody watching. Somebody was. But in the end, Moshe Rabbeinu really was looking just for practical purposes. He wanted to check to make sure there was nobody who was going to uh, do something harmful to him as a result of what he had done. The second shot that the Mepharshim give is, Moshe Rabbeinu looked, Moshe Rabbeinu looked, in both directions. Moshe Rabbeinu looked in the future of the descendants of this person, and he saw that nothing good would ever come from this man. He saw he would never have good children, and his offspring, and his descendants, and all of his lineage going further would be nothing to talk about. It would be nothing special. And therefore Moshe Rabbeinu said, there's no reason to keep him alive. He saw there was no one significant, and he gets rid of him. But the third shot, I think it's the Ksava Kabbalah writes, that's not what happened. Moshe Rabbeinu, in his first time leaving the palace of Paro, goes outside and he sees so much injustice in the world and he sees so much terror that's going on all around him. And he sees, Moshe Rabbeinu looks around and he sees that there's nobody taking responsibility. Like the Mishnah says, Moshe Rabbeinu looks around and he sees, does nobody care? Nobody's willing to stand up for another person in pain. Nobody's willing to do anything for another person who's suffering. By Yarki and Ish, he saw there was no one around who was willing to stand up and defend another person who's going through a difficult time. And that's when he stepped in. Not because he loved fighting, not because he loved to promote himself, but rather because Moshe Rabbeinu understood when there's no one else around to do the job, I need to do it. When there's another person in pain and there's no one else who's prepared to help them, I need to take responsibility. That's what the story of humanity has been about from way before Moshe Rabbeinu. Why did other Marishon and Chava lose their opportunity to be in Gan Eden? It wasn't when they did an Avera. It wasn't when they ate from the Yetzadas. Look carefully in the Pesukim and you'll learn. The reason why Adam and Chava were kicked out of Gan Eden was when HaKadosh Baruch Hu came back and he tries to speak to them and he says what happened and no one's willing to take responsibility. Adam says, Ha'isha Shonasata. Adam Arishon says, Oh, it's because of this terrible wife you gave me. She's the one who made the mistake. No one takes responsibility at that moment, Akadish Baruch, who says, You lose Ganadim. This has been the problem 
since the first since the first human being on earth that people fail to take responsibility and that we found it even in the holocaust there were many nazi officers who when they were put on trial claimed that they should be found innocent because we were just following orders this wasn't us we didn't do anything what do you mean you didn't do anything you murdered people we were just listening to others who were telling us to do this people have a natural tendency to shirk responsibility to blame others, to condemn others, and never to look at the problem with their own eyes and to understand that there's something that they can do. I think it's extremely encouraging, it's inspiring, and it's a very motivating feeling when you look around at those who have chosen to step in enthusiastically, proactively, to get involved and to take responsibility. People who are here are all those people who understand you look around at the world and you see everyone is so busy with themselves. Everyone is being selfish and self-centered. And you are looking around and realizing there's no one who's willing to look to the suffering of other people and take care of them. But you are willing to do that. And that is extremely inspiring. And it's something that is a decision that everyone here has made to be that ish, to be that person who's willing to step in to a difficult, demanding, sometimes very strenuous and complex situation that you've put yourselves into, but you do it with such grace and with such dignity and always upholding the best interest of your campers. And sometimes, you know, we lose track while we're here in Camp Simcha. The days are very long, but the, I guess the weeks are pretty short, but the days are very, very long and we're exhausted at the end. And maybe we're not really following where the Jewish calendar is up to. Um, this evening, we're already up to Yud Aleph Tammuz, which means we're about to enter into the three weeks, which are known to all of Klal Yisrael as Yimei Evel as days of mourning, as days of grief. And if you think back to the original story of how everything began, how did the deterioration of the Jewish people come to the place where it was? How did the decline, how did the descent of Klal Yisrael happen in the times of Churban Beis Amigdash? So you look in the Navi Echa, and you see that the Navi describes exactly what happened. And the Navi writes, it all began when Tum'asa Bishuleha. What does that mean? The impurities, the contamination of the Jewish people was bishuleha, which means, bishuleha means on the fringes, on the margins, on the outer perimeter. So what exactly does that mean? How do you understand what the Pasuk is trying to teach us when it says in Megillas Echa that Yerushalayim's destruction was because Tum'asa bishuleha. So the Dubna Magid gives a beautiful mashal to explain it. And he writes, there was a wealthy individual who was once asked to host a very big gathering, a big banquet. And he was not really accustomed to doing this. He never had such things in his house before. So he asked around. He asked people for advice. How should he go about planning such a thing? They told him the first thing you need to do is you need to invite a party planner, come to your house. They have to look around. They have to measure the space. They have to understand how many people you're planning to have. And then you work from there. The party planner comes to them. You're not, you're not disturbing. The party planner... No, there's a... I don't interrupt. What's wrong? Nothing. There's a... You're not. So he writes that he's talking to this party planner and they're trying to figure out how they're going to set up the house, what are they going to do? And the party planner says, look, the first thing you need to do is you need to choose a color scheme. Which colors do you want to use for this get-together, for this party? So the first thing you need to decide is you need to go out and buy a beautiful, a beautiful tablecloth. And from there, we're going to work to everything else that we need to do. From there, we're going to choose the plates. From there, we're going to choose the flowers. From there, we're going to choose what kind of drapes we're going to have. Everything's going to work around the tablecloth. 
Now, he doesn't really know how to do this. He goes to the fabric industry, and he asks the person behind the counter, can you tell me, do you have something that's really expensive? I'm having a very beautiful gathering of people in my home. I've never done this before. Can you help me out here? Try to guide me what I should buy. And he chooses the most expensive, the most luxurious, beautiful, elegant piece of fabric, and they cut it to size, and he pays the money. And as he's checking out from this uh, wonderful store, the man behind the counter says to him, you know, I just have an idea for you. I, I advise you that when you get home with this raw piece of fabric, with this raw piece of material, you should take it to a seamstress and you should have them sew up the edges. And the man turns back to the owner of the store and says, I don't understand. You know how much money I just paid for this? Why are you telling me that I have to now pay more money to go to a seamstress and do something else? Are you telling me that this is imperfect? He says, no, no, everything's great. It's perfect. It's beautiful. But you need to go have the hem sewed up. And he's back and forth. Well, then why should I buy it? Why don't I get a different piece of fabric? No, 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 you don't understand. The fabric is great. Everything's perfect. But you need to sew up the edges. The man says, this is nonsense. Obviously, you're trying to trick me to spend more money because you must know that seamstress and you're trying to get me to just pay more than I already paid. I'm not listening to you. So he doesn't. He gets to the banquet. He gets to his party, puts out his beautiful tablecloth, his piece of fabric. And there's a little five-year-old child sitting at the table. Now, what does a five-year-old child do when he's bored at the table, when there's adult conversation going on? He looks for things to do. What does he do when he sees a raw piece of fabric with some string sticking out? He starts playing with it. He starts pulling on it. Pulls on it enough until it comes out all the way on the other side. He finishes pulling out all the strings from this side of the table, and he's having such a good time, he decides, well, now let me go to the other side of the table. Moves to the other side of the table, starts doing the same. Before anybody noticed, the entire tablecloth was destroyed. The whole thing was unraveled. How did that happen, says the Dubna Magid? It happened because we were not paying attention to the small details on the edges. And sometimes when you don't pay attention to the very seemingly insignificant parts of something special, you lose the whole thing. The details are very, very important, and everything can so quickly unravel. And says the Navi, when we're talking about the destruction of Yerushalayim, that is how it all started. It all started because people were not paying enough attention to those small details that seemed to be so insignificant, that seemed to be so unimportant. I don't know if any of you have ever applied for a job. I mean, I guess you all applied to be here. You have to write a paragraph when you apply. How many of you had a difficult time figuring out what to put in that paragraph? Right? It's not so easy. Now imagine if you're not just applying for Camp Simcha, you're applying for a real job, right? like out there in the world. And you're trying to figure out, in a major company, what kind of information should I put into my bio? What should I put on the resume? How much information is appropriate to share? I don't really know much about the company, so I don't know what kind of information I'm supposed to share. I don't really know what they care about. I don't know what their interests are. What do I put in? What do I take out? It's a very difficult task. It's a big art to figure out how to write a resume properly. Now imagine if you were given the impossible exercise of compiling a resume for the Rebona Shalom himself. What would you write in the Rebona Shalom's resume if you were applying for a job somewhere? What would you decide to put in his resume? What would you write? How would you classify HaKadosh Baruch Hu? Would you say, when talking about the Rebona Shalom, he's the one who is Borei Shammai Varetz. Would I say he's the one who created the world? I think that's a nice thing to throw in. Probably. If I was talking about the Rebona Shalom and writing his bio, 
would I say the Rebona Shalom is the one who did all the Makos and Mitzrayim and Kriyat Yamsuf and everything else? I think those are relevant things to keep in mind. But let's think about what does HaKadosh Baruch Hu himself pride himself on when he talks about his accomplishments, when the Rebona Shalom shares with us what he's most proud of. You know what it says in Parshas Ekev? HaKadosh Baruch Hu's words himself. The Torah says, HaKadosh Baruch Hu says he is Osa Mishpat Yasam Ve'amana Ve'ohev Ger Lasis Lo Lechem Ve'simla. HaKadosh Baruch Hu takes the most pride, not in the fact that he was Borei Shemayim Ve'aretz, not in the fact that he did all the Makos and Mitzrayim and all the miracles of Kriyas Yamsev and all of that. It's all nice. What he takes the most pride in is that he was Osa Mishpat Yasam Ve'amana that HaKadosh Baruch Hu pays attention to somebody who's often neglected and overlooked. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu is Ohev Ger Lasis Lo Lechem Vesimla. HaKadosh Baruch Hu fiercely defends the one who is disadvantaged, the one who other people are not paying attention to. He does not focus on the grandeur. He doesn't focus on the big. He's most proud of the fact that he pays attention to the smallest, most overlooked parts of the population. And that's something for all of you to be proud of. People are not always looking to take care of the campers that you are taking care of. Not everybody's running to do Biker Chola. And during the year, you're going to keep up with your campers. This is just the beginning of a relationship. And that's going to mean many different things. It's going to mean visiting them at times that are extremely inconvenient. I remember a counselor called me during the year. And you're all welcome to be in touch if you think I can ever be helpful. But I remember that <coughs> a counselor called me during the year that on Purim night, nobody in the family wanted to be with their daughter in the hospital. Nobody wanted to miss out Purim. Now, it's not a condemnation on the parents. The parents were trying to figure out how to juggle the rest of their children and the rest of their family and how to give them an experience. They didn't want everyone to lose out because of this child that was in the hospital. And the most obvious choice of who they called was the counselor from Camp Simcha to spend the night in the hospital with their daughter. And this girl called me and said, what should I do? I'm missing Mikra Megillah. I'm not going to be with my family. I'm taking off, you know, time from enjoying with everybody else. And I'm going to sit in the hospital the entire day of Purim night and Purim day and be alone with this girl who is not even strong enough to have conversations with me. She was so weak because of her treatment. Is there anything that can give us more pride than the fact that we are the ones who are acting like HaKadosh Baruch Hu. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is not ashamed of the fact that he pays attention to the ger and the yasam ve'almana, to the one who is disadvantaged, to the one who is ill-fated, to the one who doesn't have the same blessed circumstances as other people have. HaKadosh Baruch Hu pays attention to them. And we have the opportunity to pay attention to them as well and to give them attention and to build them up and to give them pride, and to make them feel that they have what to accomplish, and they have something to do, and that they are not alone, and they have our love and our care that's always going to be with them. There's an amazing medrash, when the medrash describes what happened on the occasion of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. It says the medrash that HaKadosh Baruch Hu told the Jewish people that the only way to save themselves by Makas Bechorus was, they had to take an Azov, they had to take a small blade of grass, dip it into the blood, and put it on top of the doorpost. We all remember that. Says the Medrash, The blade of grass seems so insignificant to us. How many times have you seen someone walk by a blade of grass and you just rip it out of the ground 
you're not really paying attention. It doesn't really matter to you. You walk by a leaf of a tree, you just pull it off. How many of you have seen people on this campus take soda and spill it onto the grass? No? Anyone seen that? Yeah, people don't care. It doesn't really matter to us. Ha'ezov nira la'adam the power of the blade of grass is so significant in the eyes of HaKadosh Baruch Because the whole Geula unfolded. The whole way that we were saved was only because of that tiny blade of grass that seemed so insignificant. But that's why we were saved. Because HaKadosh Baruch Hu told us to take that small blade of grass and pay attention to it and do something with it. And I dare say, when you read that Medrash and you understand the story of Etzias Mitzrayim, it should make us all feel, Just like HaKadosh Baruch Hu made the Geula happen because of something that seems so insignificant and so small, that's the way Geula is going to happen to us as well. Because we pay attention to things that are small and seemingly insignificant. You know, we know that every word in the Chumash is so carefully measured. Not just every word, every letter in the Chumash. You know that sometimes Yaakov is spelled Male with Havav, and sometimes it's spelled Chaser, and Chazal tell us sometimes Eliyahu is spelled as Eliyahu, and sometimes Eliyah. Six times it's Yaakov Male, and six times it's Eliyahu Chaser, and this and that. Every word and every letter is so carefully measured, there's a reason for everything. Not just every word, every non-word. Every extra space in the Chumash is also there for a reason. So there's something very unusual that you find by Parshas Masse. I don't know how many of you are going to be in Shul Parshas Masse. Parshas Masse is probably, I, it's a strange thing to say, but probably one of the most boring Kriyas Atoras you'll ever hear. Why? Aside from Parshas Naso, where you just go through all the Nasiyim, the same story over and over again, listen to what happens in Parshas Masse. Parshas Masse basically gives a listing of all the places where the Jewish people traveled through the Midbar. Now, the truth is, throughout Sefer Shmos, Vayikra, Vamidbar, the Torah is telling us all of these different places where they went. So now, at the end, we have to recap. First of all, why do we have to recap? What does it matter? We already learned where they went and how they traveled. Why is it relevant? This is never going to happen again. It's not like we need this because we need to know how to travel next time we get stuck. It's never going to happen again. So why does the Torah go and reinforce the whole story over and over again and tell us this is how it happened, and this is how it unfolded, and this is where they went, and this is where they didn't go. This is how long they stayed. Why do we care? So the Torah goes into a very, very lengthy discussion of how they exactly traveled from one location to the other. Think about this for a moment. Just put it in context. The story of Bria, Shammai, and Ba'aretz. Do you know how many psukim there are in the Torah that describe the creation of the world? Anybody know? 31. How many psukim talk about Kabbalah Satorah, the greatest moment in Jewish history? How many psukim are given for that? The greatest revelation of HaKadosh Baruch Hu on Harsinai. Peh El Peh, he had a conversation with us directly. How many psukim there? 14 psukim. Parshas Masay, going through all of this monotonous description of all the different travels, one place to the other. How many psukim are given to that whole discussion about where they traveled? Over 50 psukim. That's more than Bria, Shemayim, Ba'aretz, and Kabbalah, Satorah put together. So much so, one of the great Mekubalim in the 1400s writes in one of his svarim, Bechal kula in davar sheyira shehu kamo hamasas. There is nothing in Kala kula that seems as seemingly extraneous, as non-essential 
as unimportant as this cataloging of every city and every municipality and every juncture and every crossroad and everywhere they went. So what's the significance? Why does the Torah share all of this with us? What are we supposed to learn from it? So the Nesiva Shalom writes in a Sefer on Parshas Masay. He says, This parsha is not just telling us about what happened in the days of the Midbar when they traveled from Mitzrayim to Eretz Yisrael. This is a story that is relevant to every generation and to every individual in every generation as well. Because our lives, every human being's life, is like the journey of the Jewish people going and trying to travel to Eretz Yisrael. And he writes, we all start off our lives in Mitzrayim. Mitzrayim means Meitzarim. We are confined in some way when we're younger. We don't have the capacity when you're two years old to do everything in the world. As you grow older, you're given more responsibility. You're given more freedom. You have opportunities. You see a big world. And the object of your life is supposed to be, the objective should be, that you try to get to Eretz Yisrael. What does it mean? It doesn't mean you have to live in Eretz Yisrael. It means we try to push ourselves towards a spiritual life. That's what it's all about. So our whole lives in some way are patterned off of that story of the traveling in the Midbar to get to Eretz Yisrael. That's really what it's about. And the two takeaways that he has are, on, are as follows. Number one, the only way you can reach a goal getting from Mitzrayim to Eretz Yisrael is by going through many, many different junctures along the way. Goals are not accomplished from one moment to the next. That doesn't happen. Significant milestones in life are only going to happen through a lot of hard work. And it's going to take going from this place to the next place. And you never know, you're going to meet someone here who's going to introduce you to someone there. And with all of those different components put together, you're then going to get to the final product by working hard, by going through the journey, and by realizing that every stage of that journey is significant to get you to the place where you need to get to. That's message number one, says the Nesiva Shalom, that we take from Parshas Masay. But message number two, he says, is that what makes the journey and the odyssey of life meaningful is when you see all the small and specific details along the way that made it as memorable as it was. Imagine, any of you ever read an art school biography about someone great? So all the stories are exactly the same about every Talmud Chacham that ever lived. What does it say? Of course, when he was born, the house lit up. Then when he was two and a half years old, he finished all the Mishnahis, he knew it by heart. When he was three and a half years old, he finished all of Shas, and he knew that by heart. And then he became a Dayan on the Beisdin of the city. When he was six and a half, he was a genius, everybody, like, these stories. And then he learned, and he learned, and he learned, and he learned, and he learned some more, and then he died. That's the story. So why do you read the book? Right? I basically just cut down a 150-page book into one sentence. So why do you read the book? Because what makes that life meaningful, even though that might be the storyline that you often find, what makes it meaningful is that as you read the book, you see the small things along the way that made this person really special. That when they went to a wedding and they saw that there was a band that was playing music, they went over to the band and said, thank you. One example of a million examples. But when a person lives life paying attention to the small things that actually make a difference to people, how they impacted the etza that they gave, the idea they had, the listening ear that they gave to another person, whatever it may have been. All of those small details along the way are what made their lives extremely meaningful. Otherwise, there would be nothing special about their life. But that's what makes life special. The Masay B'nai Yisrael. 
realizing all those steps along the way are what make all of our lives very, very special. But it's only when we realize that details matter. When you put the details together, all of those can build together to make something extremely unique and significant. None of us here can cure cancer. None of us can bring an end to the physical and emotional trauma and misery that many of our campers feel. As much as they're smiling and having a great time here, many of their lives are extremely complicated. And we're not going to solve it. We can't get rid of that. We wish there was a pill that we can give them that can just take care of all of that. I just spoke to a camper for the last hour and a half. That's why I'm totally unprepared for this. And I wasn't supposed to speak tonight. But part of my rambling. Um, I just spoke to a camper who's almost three years in remission. But the emotional scars that she's left with the unbelievable pain that she's in because of what she went through and the isolation that she felt and the lack of understanding of her friends and her community as she was going through this is something that will be with her for a very long time. So we're not going to cure that. We can't cure that. But at the same time, you all have made a decision to be that ish, to be that person who stands up and who's prepared to do anything to help somebody who's at a disadvantage, to help somebody who other people are overlooking and not paying enough attention to. And it's those small, even temporary, provisional aspects of life that we provide for all of our campers, even in the most modest, unassuming, and humble way that we can, It's those things that make it extremely substantial, very compelling, and something that is very, very significant to them. You'll notice that every activity that happens here on this campus, they don't just do activities. There's an extreme attention that is given to detail. Anybody notice last night when they had that whole thing? They were serving all these little foods as you came into the room, whatever they're called. Why? Did we really need that? No, we didn't need it. You were serving, right? Thank you, it was great. We didn't need it. But how special did a girl feel when she walked in? And not only did they have what she was expecting them to have, but there was some additional detail that was put onto it. Something extra, something special. More than what was anticipated. It's those things that people remember. It's those things that in your relationships in your lives, and Mirza Hashem with your own spouses and your own children, it's those things that really matter. It's the small details. It's not always the big thing. You know what? Don't buy a gift on the anniversary. Don't celebrate each other's birthdays. Instead, trade that in. I'm not saying you shouldn't, but trade that in for being nice every single day of your marriage, for being respectful every single day that you're in a relationship. For being understanding, for doing small things, it will mean more to your spouse than all of these big gifts you're going to buy them. The big gifts sometimes are important as well. HaKadosh Baruch Hu had to create the world and he had to do Kriyas Yamsev and he had to do big things. But what he takes pride in is the small things. 
because those are extremely impactful on a day-to-day. All of you have made and continue to make major impressions on the lives of others. And it's a tremendous chus to be from that category of people who have the opportunity to impact others and to make a real difference in their lives. And as I said, maybe we won't have the ability to cure them of the overarching issue that they're dealing with or of the major issues that they're confronting. But what we all have the opportunity to do and what we have done over the last couple of days and Mirza Shem in the next couple of months and years, what we will be able to do is continue to be that support, to continue to be that person who is going to pay attention to the smallest of needs that only we can fill. We understand them. We have opened up to them and they have opened up to us. And we're in a position where we are really able to make significant differences in their lives to make them just a little bit happier, but those are the things that really stand out in people's lives. Aluva Atzlichu, you should continue to be able to make impressions on others. You should continue to always be on this end, to be able to give and never to have to take. As we say in benching, whenever we bench, we ask HaKadosh Baruch Hu, we should never be in a position, Loli Dei Matnas Basar Adam, we should never have to be the ones to rely on others to help us. But unfortunately, there are many people in the world who do need help. And we are privileged to be the ones who have the opportunity and the ability to help them. We should continue to have strength. I know everyone is exhausted. I know everyone feels they should be appreciated. So there is something in the dining room that is going to show a little bit of appreciation to you. It's